Hey everybody, just a quick word before we get started this week. We're in the midst of a fun drive here at Dead Pundit Society, and we're asking all of our listeners to consider contributing to our project. We can't do this without the generous support of our patrons, past and present, and we're joining our comrades across the ocean at Navarra Media and asking our listeners to consider donating one hour's wage per month in order to keep our operations up and running. Our next Patreon goal is 500 patrons, and we're very, very close. So if you've been thinking about supporting us for some time, if you benefit from the podcast that we bring to you each week, if you want to help support our project and help us continue expanding, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and contribute as much as you can to the project. You'll be getting some B-sides and subscriber-only content. We're going to be doing a news show each week here in the coming weeks once I sort out all of the logistics on that, and that'll be available exclusively to patrons only. So if you just can't get enough of this DPS content, continue supporting us and you'll get much more. All right, on with the episode. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother... Hello, everybody, and welcome to Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, Adam Proctor. On today's show, we'll be discussing a bizarre report released by the White House's Council of Economic Advisors. It was titled The Opportunity Costs of Socialism. It appears to be a haphazardly concocted collection of old wives' tales and red baiting. It's meant to take the wind out of the sails of democratic socialism and its popular policies of Medicare for all and much more. Now, the Council of Economic Advisors has traditionally been conceived as a technocratic body comprised of professional economists and number crunchers. But last week, they broke with tradition by seemingly replacing their entire staff with second-year economic students from George Mason University, all of whom (laughs) appear to be drunk on the idea of personal liberty and utility preferences, having just stumbled across the Wikipedia page for Friedrich von Hayek's The Road to Serfdom. Joining us to talk about this absurd report is our very own Amy Therese. Hi. Hi, Adam. Hi, listeners. And our guest today is Matt Brunig of the People's Policy Project. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So in the opening paragraph, I presented the CEA as this technocratic body without a political agenda. Uh, That's how it's been characterized in every major story, whether they are sympathetic to the report in some senses or whether they are oppositional to the report. Is this an accurate characterization? Is the CEA... Uh, largely a technocratic, non-political body without a political agenda. Uh, And just who are the Council of Economic Advisors? Give us a little history lesson there. Uh, The CEA is the group of economists that directly provide advice to the president and the executive branch. It's not exactly nonpartisan in the in the same sense as like the Congressional Budget Office, because the obviously the economists that are appointed to the CEA go along with the ideology of whoever's in office. So Obama had sort of liberal economists in the CEA, and then Trump had conservative economists in the CEA. But they are like professional economists who generally produce more technical papers uh, as opposed to, I don't know, ideological papers about what is and isn't socialism versus communism and that sort of thing, which is not really the in the wheelhouse of technocratic academic economists is more of a, a social science philosophy type type thing. Uh, mm. So the paper is is kind of strange. You do occasionally get papers out of the CEA that are, in a sense, motivated to support some partisan policy agenda. 
But this kind of goes beyond that because it wasn't just a paper about, you know, healthcare or something like that that supported, you know, Trump's view on healthcare. It was a 72 page indictment of socialism as an idea, which is, uh, yeah, I, I can't think of any report in recent CEA history that it looks anything like this. Now, what, what, do, what do you make of the timing of this report? I mean, I think Trump has been, well, we know for a fact Trump has been on the campaign trail uh, or whatever he does when he goes out and talks to these massive audiences. Uh, he's been you know, demeaning, smearing, slandering democratic socialists and their policy platform. Uh, a lot of the talking points that we want to talk about later on in the episode, I would say we're going to pick them apart piece by piece. You know, he always uh, compares Bernie Sanders and uh, Liz Warren in an odd kind of conflation there that we want to pick apart as well with, uh, you know, the policies of Venezuela and some of the economic deprivation that you see in countries that have been excluded from the global capitalist economic world. What, what do you make of the timing of this report? And does that account for its utter just bizarre nature? Uh, yeah, well, <clears throat> you know, obviously we're a few weeks out or, uh, from the midterm elections, so I guess that would be the most relevant thing to consider. Um, the Republicans in the election forecasts are not doing well in the midterms. They're expected to lose the House, expected to lose a lot of governorships. Uh, you know, the, the needle has definitely swung in the other direction, and so... You're seeing a lot of uh, Hail Marys at the moment, I suppose, mm -hmm. including, you know, this caravan stuff. And perhaps this was part of it. Uh, I, I don't know. That's the only thing I could think of. I don't it doesn't seem like it's actually going to be very effective because, you know, you get this little news blip. Some people pay attention to it online and that's that. It's not the kind of thing that you can run up on Fox News every day like you can a caravan. Uh, so I don't really see uh, <laughs> yeah. maybe that was the strategy, but I don't see how how it actually is going to play out that way. Do you think that in an Amy, you probably have some thoughts on this as well. Do you I mean, do you do you all think that it's possible that what we're seeing here is a certain kind of, I don't know, structural because, you know, we talk about structural anti-Semitism, right? You don't have to necessarily invoke explicitly anti-Semitic language in order to, to sort of uh, lean on a structural anti-Semitism. You're talking about sort of the bankers sort of, you know, operating behind closed doors. A lot of the criticisms of George Soros and, and his ilk uh, are, I would say, structurally anti-Semitic. Are we seeing the kind of appearance of a structural, I don't know, uh, anti, uh, well, hell, you could just call it national socialism. Because it seems to me that the immigrant car <laughs> caravans, the immigrant like caravans, bear with me here, the immigrant caravans and the kind of imagery and the, and the scare tactics involved there perhaps uh, have a connection with the Venezuela scaremongering as well, that we're sort of uh, marshalling this I don't know, this imagery of this kind of, uh, I don't know, am I, am I onto something here? I mean, it's, I'm, I'm trying to connect those two things that you've just uh, brought um, together and I'm thinking through me. it for the first uh, time. <laughs> um, I, I thought this was dead pundits and yet it sounds a lot more like <laughs> Alex Jones today. Adam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just um, riffing I think, here. Well, I mean, if you're talking like about structural anti-socialism, like that's mm -hmm. that's what the fuck capitalism is. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think we point. need to reinvent the wheel on that one. I'm just wondering if if these two if these kind of uh, if these two t major talking points are more connected, perhaps, than folks are willing to to think about. Well, because I typically, think they're just throwing shit at the wall to see what yeah. sticks, right? Yeah. Well, so so sometimes you do you do definitely get 
when talking about Latin America in particular, you do you do sometimes get this feeling of it's it's not just anti-brown people, it's not mm-hmm. just anti-socialists. It's uh, look at all those brown socialists down there, mm-hmm. and and they do talk about Latin America to some degree, but I don't know because I would say most of the report was not about Venezuela or Latin America. Yeah. It was about northern and eastern europe so right which is empirically it was about northern eastern europe which i think we can take that apart very easily but again i think maybe the the imagery they're trying to invoke there is connecting this kind of this ms13 this fear of ms13 the kind of uh the immigrants who are coming to to break into your vacation homes in arizona and take your jobs is uh, very much connected to this kind of anti-democratic socialist campaign that they're running. Uh, anyway, there's, that, that's a very, very hot take. Take it for what you will. Don't hold on it too long. Uh, don't hold on to it too long. It'll burn you. Um, I, might, uh, I might jettison that one down the road. But in any case, let's get back to it. This report by the CEA uh, was occasioned by the t- 200th anniversary of Karl Marx's birth. Which is a bizarre framing. Oh, is that how they pegged it? I, they I guess that is the first sentence I, I they did. skipped I've, over that. I've been to multiple conferences over the past year or two. I've, I've read uh, a number of you know journals, uh, whatever articles, collections of articles and such. And you know, this is the the same kind of opening that you get from a Marxist celebration of Karl Marx's birth. It's very bizarre. And the CEA notes that socialism is making a comeback in American political discourse. And detailed policy proposals from self-declared socialists are gaining support in Congress among much of the electorate. So it's very clear that their eyes are on the prize here in in terms of taking down socialism's uh, vision and popularity. So let's get to concrete instances of socialism that exist in in the real world today. You recently uh, released a report from your People's Policy Project that was uh, printed as well in Jacobin uh, just this past week, picking apart some of the empirical findings uh, that were reported in the CEA. Tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, so at some point in the paper, I guess the middle chunk of it, they turned to the Nordic countries of Sweden, Finland, Denmark, and Norway. And the treatment of that those countries is a little bit confusing in the piece because they sort of simultaneously say you know, Americans who claim these countries are socialists are actually wrong. These are not socialist countries. Look at these, you know, the Heritage Freedom Index and that sort of thing. So on the one hand, they're they're kind of arguing that they're not socialist, uh, which is fine. But then they turn around and say, but they prove that socialism doesn't work. They actually prove the point that socialism doesn't work. And you say, how can it be <laughs> if they're not if they're not socialists? How can how can that be that it, that that actually proves the point? But they managed to, uh, to 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 hold that together somehow in the paper. Um, but then you know, uh, putting aside whether they are or aren't socialists and what they prove or don't prove, there were some empirical efforts to compare the countries to the U.S. And this is something I've done a lot, of course, over the years, comparing you know Finland to the U.S. and that sort of thing. And the sort of, to me, the, the, big, uh, the big sort of shot that they took was around standards of living, average standards of living. And so that's always a, you know, worthwhile question of, you know, is, it, is the standard of living in Finland better or worse than the United States? And the way that they go about trying to answer that question is with this concept known as average individual consumption or is or it's actually average actual individual consumption hmm. 
That actual is doing a lot of work there. We want to break that down. Yeah. Yeah. The actual is key. And I mean, this is not their uh, concept. They didn't invent this concept, but it is a problematic concept um, as applied to the Nordic countries. Um, And anyways, the short of it is they show that under this measure, those countries, the standards of living are, you know, around 15 to 30 percent lower than the U.S. And so I, I put out a report where I just kind of made some slight modifications to it. I just I sort of took their number and modified it with reasonable modifications in my in my mind. Um, the first modification is, okay, instead of individual consumption, why don't we do total consumption? Because the way individual consumption is measured is you basically take total consumption and then you subtract out collective consumption that is done in the form of public services. Um, and so effectively, individual consumption just discounts all collective consumption as not improving well-being, um, which is crazy and also sort of begs the question because like well yes if you're going to discount all collective consumption <laughs> and then socialism will always fail compared to your model um yeah. Yeah. so let's yeah. bring in all consumption and then the second thing i did was because they wanted to talk so much about healthcare in the report let's subtract out all of this money that the U.S. spends towards healthcare that is in excess of what these countries spend. Because there's no way you could look at those countries in the U.S. and say, yeah, the U.S. healthcare system is actually delivering more value, more health, more, you know, better outcomes. That, that's not possible. So it's reasonable to me to say, okay, every dollar we spend above what they spend must be pure waste because obviously we don't get more out of it. In fact, we seem to get less out of it. Um, so let's just adjust for that. Don't count all the crazy money we're paying to health insurers, to pharmaceutical companies, to you know extreme doctors. Don't count that as consumption and well-being. That's just rents. You're just paying it off to rich people. This is all. Um, I mean, this this goes into our GDP, which is then distributed in, in, uh, into our alleged individual consumption. Consumption is supposed to be good, right? We're consuming. We're right. going to the movie theater. We're eating right. delicious steaks at the at restaurants. We're buying cars and pickup trucks, as you know the CEA likes to talk about. Right. Uh, what they don't note is that GDP is also in, includes a tremendous amount of wasteful spending in, in the U.S. The, yeah. the most wasteful spending is as as you've mentioned, healthcare. Just to spell that out for people. Um, right. Yeah. There's no when you're measuring total consumption or GDP or any of those figures. There's no effort to try to figure out is this spending actually doing anything? You, you just add it up. So every dollar you send off to a health insurer, they count that as individual consumption that's improving your well-being. Which every is, dollar you spend on paying interest to credit cards and student loans, for example. Right. You know, I mean, that's absurd. Yeah, no, I think the valuable takeaway there is that we should, we should have the confidence to face down you know, these, these numbers and these statistics that get cooked up in these reports, because, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's just the absurdity underlying the logic that consumption is good and look at all of our consumption here in the U S. And so our system is therefore obviously superior. I mean, when you break it down like that, you look at people who are paying $300 for crutches at, at the, you know, at, at, in the hospital, no cost controls whatsoever in, in, in medical, uh, medical, uh, healthcare. Or, or, for example, the, the, the point that I just brought up, which didn't occur to me until just now, it's every dollar I spend on interest in my credit card or my student loans is going into the glorious individual consumption of the United States. Um, I, don't, I don't feel like my life is, is made uh, better <laughs> by those entrance payments. I don't know about everybody else, but I digress. Anyhow, take it away, Matt. What, yeah, what yeah. were some of the other uh, All right. differences yeah, that you so, brought before? Yeah, so 
there are three differences. The one, total consumption, not just individual consumption. Two, let's subtract out excess healthcare spending. You could subtract out a lot of other spending as well, but let's just stick to healthcare. That'll make it easy. And then the third was let's adjust for hours worked because in these other countries, they're working 20%, 30% fewer hours depending on which one you look at. And the problem there is if, if you're, if you're counting consumption, you know, every hour that you have of free time is sort of lost. It's like, well, you don't produce anything and therefore there's no consumption. But that's not how like normal people think about it. Like when you're on the weekend, you're not like, man, uh, I'm really losing a lot of well-being right now because I could be back in the factory turning yeah. out more widgets. Um, what you're really thinking is like how how terrible the Sunday scaries are because you're just so uh, you know overwhelmed with the free-floating anxiety about your upcoming week. Like you know that's that's really what's going in through people's heads. I think which is quite the opposite of being concerned about your productivity, right? Right. Anyway. So I sort of say, well, okay, let's. Um, instead of essentially dividing by the number of people in the country, let's divide by the total number of hours worked by everyone in the country. That way we'll get an adjustment for hours worked. And so like essentially once you make all these modifications, what you end up with is a measure of total consumption per hour worked minus excess health spending, of course. And when you do that, the differences all fall out. Denmark and Norway are right on... Norway slightly higher than the U.S., Denmark one point lower, Finland's like nine points lower, and Sweden's 15 points lower. So instead of it being 15 to 30 percent, it's now, you know, zero to 15 percent lower, and that's on average. So that's sort of the first thing. Okay, let's get average consumption. And then from there, I don't make any other transformations, but I do raise the points that you would want to raise, which you would say, okay, it looks like average consumption is pretty similar, right? Maybe five, six points less if you make the modifications you should. But you have to look at how that consumption is distributed. It makes no difference, right? I mean, the, if, uh, it, it, the consumption in those countries is distributed way more equally than here. So you can at least look at the income genie and say, that's probably, you know, more or less what we're talking about here. So in those countries, you know, the bottom gets a much larger share of total output, total consumption than the bottom here gets. And so when you start bringing that in, you're like, well, you know, would you rather be a lower or middle class person if you had to choose which of the countries would you choose? Well, of course you would choose those countries. If you were an upper class person, well, of course you would choose America. Isn't it interesting how we always project ourselves as being the rich guy in the room, right? Or in in the country. So before we lose anybody here with our uh, jargon, explain to the audience what what is the Gini coefficient and and how does that function in these kind of calculations, these kind of cross-national comparative uh, situations? Uh, The Gini coefficient is basically a measure of the unevenness of a distribution. So think about we have uh, national income in the United States is about $16 trillion. And imagine you can figure out exactly how much money each person gets out of that $16 trillion. And then you kind of line them up in a row and you figure out how concentrated that distribution is towards the top or how spread out it is across the whole society. And there's a complicated mathematical formula for doing that. But at the end of that formula, you get a number from zero to one, with one being the most 
unequal. One being the richest person in the world in the country gets everything and zero being everyone has an equal amount and you can sort of span between them. And the Gini coefficients in those countries are uh, quite a bit lower than ours. I don't remember right off the top of my head. Um, so gra- graphically, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at numbers. I'm, I'm, I'm like uh, the polar opposite of, of probably your, your strengths, <laughs> your wheelhouse, Matt, and, and Amy's probably as well. But I, I like to look at things graphically. So maybe, perhaps maybe graphically, as you mentioned, you're looking at like a flat income, dist- a relatively flat income distribution across if you start, say, on the x-axis from, you know, the, the zero percentile to the, the, the top 100th uh, Right, right. Right, right, yeah. If you wanted to, that would be an easier way, and you wouldn't even have to come up with a Gini coefficient where you just, all right, imagine the poorest person is on the left of the graph, the richest person is on the right, and you say, what percent of the income is going to each bucket? Mm-hmm. And in theirs, you have a fair, yeah, you know, it does slope upwards, but it's gradual, and then ours is really extreme <laughs> an aggressive <laughs> curve yeah, yeah once you get past the 90th percentile and up in particular in 95 so let's talk a little bit about let's uh part you know excuse me if i'm uh, we can rewind if I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit too much but i think one of the most interesting things you point out here in in just debunking these numbers that seem to be a kind of mic drop for the for the right is this what you what you might call the alaska effect What's going on there? Why do people pay more for commodities in uh, yeah. far-flung, <laughs> you know, uh, places like uh, Sweden and Norway and, and so on? Yeah. So when you're trying to compare quantities across countries, especially quantities of income or consumption or that sort of thing, you have to find a way to make the figures comparable. <clears throat> so you know, how much is one Finnish euro? Uh, how much is that worth in U.S. dollars or how much is a Norwegian krone worth in U.S. dollars? And one way to do this would just be to use the exchange rate. So, you know, there, there are currency markets and you can see exactly, you know, six krone equals one dollar or something like that. But the sort of sophisticated uh, expert way to do it, which they do use in the report, is something called purchasing power parity. And the way PPP works is rather than just trying to figure out what the exchange rate is in currency markets, what you do is you figure out how much will that buy you in that country. So you could kind of think about it. Uh, sometimes people use something called a Big Mac index. <laughs> so you say like, well, how much is a Big Mac in Finland versus how much is a Big Mac in the U.S.? And then you divide those figures to figure out what the conversion rate should be for the currency, you know. And the problem with that, that, that is a, a very useful thing. Like it's not a hack garbage idea. The problem is that you have to make sure you're using it appropriately to reach appropriate conclusions. And so an appropriate conclusion might be that, hey, since things are more expensive in Finland and Norway, then that means you should take that in consideration when you're trying to figure out, do you want to move there or not? Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean that the economic system is worse because things can be more expensive for all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with whether your economic institutions are efficient or effective. And so the Alaska effect is essentially getting at that point, because in Alaska, 
goods and services are a lot more expensive than they are in other parts in the country. Uh, in my uh, piece, I pointed out that Alaska prices are about 16% higher than prices in Kansas, which would mean that a U.S. dollar in uh, you know Alaska goes way or a U.S. dollar in Kansas goes way further than it does in Alaska. But you wouldn't then go and say, well, there must be something wrong with the way Alaska runs its economy. <laughs> you know, you'd say, well, no, Alaska is a frozen, you know, hellscape. And like that just makes <laughs> things really expensive. But you certainly wouldn't, you certainly would have trouble <laughs> indicting Alaska's economic setup if the yardstick is Kansas. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, and so the same thing is actually true of these countries, and people don't take this into consideration as much as I think they should. It it is just hard to move stuff in and out of these countries. They're frozen much of the year. The tr- they're separated by water, all of them except for Denmark from Europe. So you've got to like ferry stuff across the Baltic Sea, and like the there are things that just objectively make stuff more expensive there. And when you count when you're trying to convert consumption figures between one or the other, if you subtract, if you use the fact that stuff's more expensive there to do that conversion, then you're going to end up saying, wow, these, these places are a lot poorer when that's not really that that's true in a sense. They have to consume less because it's just more expensive to move goods and services up into the, into the countries, but that has nothing to do with their policies. Right. Um, Ask Hawaii how much they pay per gallon in, uh, in gas. Hawaii is an even you better know, case. Ask, Alaska, ask, ask yeah, Hawaii how much the they pay for a pound, a pound of ground beef right. um, or something like that. You know, it, it's absurd. Um, it's interesting how, you know, we use aggregates and averages <laughs> in, in the dismal science of economics, uh, you know, to, to make certain points when, you know, they fall apart under, under inspection. Of course, the aggregates have to be or the, the, the averages rather. Are, are smooth out the various inequalities that we, as we've mentioned in, in, in reference to wealth and uh, the Gini coefficients, and they also smooth out commodity prices. Again, you know, you're not going to pay the same for uh, ground beef in Hawaii as you are in, I don't know, Oklahoma. But the vastness of the U.S. economy smooths out those differences and makes us seem to be a lot better off across the board in comparison to much, much smaller, less geographically and economically diverse countries. Right. One, it's just important to, you know, if we're trying to compare differences between countries in particular, you need to be really attuned to those differences, right? You can't just slap, uh, oh, actual average individual consumption adjusted for PPP and just throw that out there. If you want to be serious about this, you have to go, what are the differences between a country that is in the Arctic Circle (laughs) and a country that isn't? And what are the differences between countries that work 20% less than others? Like Those are things you really, if you want to be serious about it, you have to count those in in your comparisons. How many Pinocchios would you give this report? You know, I, I, I guess I would have four is the maximum uh, on the Pinocchio scale. Um, 
the Pinocchio scale is the truthiness of, uh, you know, the truthiness scale, uh, to use that word, actually quite literally cribbing from Stephen Colbert. It's their fact checker at the, at the, Washington, the Washington Post. Post. So who's the, who's, the, yeah. who's the, the fine gentleman who does that colleague? Glenn of your Kessler way. is. Kessler, yeah. His title is the fact checker. Um, so it's very epic. Hey, I don't know if you saw today. I don't want to get too distracted, but he's uh, been tweeting lately that Republicans have been claiming that uh, some of their opponents had received four Pinocchios from Glenn Kessler. And that, that actually wasn't true. And someone needs to correct that. Oh, and shit. I like just, I like just watching this, this, this fellow recognize in real time, the futility of his entire enterprise that it actually doesn't, you know, being this umpire that declares facts that actually doesn't matter. No one gives a shit. Yeah. Hey, Hey, yeah. Hey, Hey guys, he just calls bulls and strikes, right? <laughs> Who's gonna give the 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 Pinocchio scale a, a, a Pinocchio scale? I mean, it's like it's this is we're getting meta level here. Giuseppe, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Jesus, we need to re- resuscitate Verit, don't we? Oh, please stop. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's so funny. Like I, perhaps this is like because I do a lot of like critical legal theory and. It strikes me that, like, and it always has, economics is much the same in as much as, like, what critical legal work does is it kind of, like, the start assumption is the idea that the law will purport to be objective and and neutral. Um, But ultimately, like, it's always political. You can use this ostensibly neutral language to tell a particular story. And it strikes me that, like, the manipulation of statistics is much the same, right? So, like, they're not wrong, but it's primarily about, like, what they're being used in service of. Um, And because most people seem to have, like, pretty limited acuity with the language of statistics in much the same way as they do with the language of the law, it's very easy to tell certain stories with the implication that that they're not political, that they're not ideologically loaded, um, when in fact they are. Yeah, I think, I mean, um, yeah, all, 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 they all contain ideological choices that people have to make about what to count and what not to count. And then there's just the fact that when people get numbers, people think numbers are, you know, that the, the, their objective truth in, in some way, um, don't realize that they're the process of, that they're they output of a process that involves lots of human decision-making about what to include and what not to include. Um, in this case, the most obvious ideological assumption is the uh, the fact that um, free time is counted as worth nothing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that exactly. is how the consumption measure works. It says free time is worth nothing yeah. because you're not producing anything that is sold into a market and therefore shows up in the national accounts. I think yeah, we here on Dead Punnet Society, and I think you as well, matter like kind of you know strident critics at least you know maybe sympathetic critics but critics of a certain kind of moralism that substitute morals and and you know ethical claims for you know hard facts and and uh and, and empirical uh, evidence but at the same time um there's no question and actually you know one of the most uh, effective and i think promising uh, exponents of the kind of moral superiority of our arguments is your wife Liz Brunig, 
who's just a, a really, I think, important and excellent commentator with respect to bringing out the superior moral content of our arguments. Because I think it's clear that when it comes to making a claim that we are making here, which is that, hey, guess what, folks? Free time is actually good, folks. People like it. People enjoy it. Uh, spending time with your family is is great. And doing things that you love is, is important. Um, I mean, those those arguments are just morally and ethically on our side, and we should be much more strident in making them. So with that being said, let's talk about uh, a, a fine gentleman here uh, by the name of Tyler Cowan. Tyler has written a piece for Bloomberg. It's titled, The White House Says Socialism is a Threat. It's Right. And uh, Tyler Cowan is a arch-conservative, so. <laughs> arch-right-wing, libertarian conservative, uh, whatever you want to call him economist at George Mason University. He is uh, his position there is bought and paid for essentially by the Koch brothers and that whole industry of uh, manipulators, uh, billionaire manipulators. Um, he has a qualified defense of this report. On the one hand, he rightly, I think, calls out the kind of histrionics of the report and, and you know, he's saying it's, it's a little ridiculous to call forth the legacy of Mao and Lenin and Pol Pot uh, to talk about the aims of these democratic socialists. And yet their aims are legitimately evil and awful. Um, what, what do you make of the kind of capital V, capital S, very serious approach of the likes of Tyler Cowan? They seem to be running the show right now. What is their game? Uh, is it possible for them to convince people that no, actually, the most popular program, Medicare, is actually bad? Um, what's what's the game here, and, and how, how do you how do you foresee them playing it going into twenty eighteen and twenty twenty? Yeah, so I mean, there's a class of of pundits and public intellectuals, I guess, on the right that are in this mold. Uh, Raihan Salam is another one of them. Uh, Ross doubt that is to some degree, though I think he's probably more sincere in his approach that they basically write for liberal audiences and they kind of paint themselves as, you know, I'm the reasonable conservative, which liberals love. The liberals love the reasonable conservative more than they love <laughs> even other liberals. Um, yeah, absolutely. And and I don't know how much of it's fake, how much of it isn't. I mean, it does seem like at one point in the recent past, Cowan was a rather sort of mouth-frothing, you know, Hayekian libertarian before he became a, a seasoned man of the world. Um, and so... <laughs> he lost know. the bow tie and picked up a love for theater or like Hamilton or whatever. I don't know. It's, uh... Yeah, no, that's exactly right. It's like, you know, to, to use the name of the, of the podcast, he did, yeah, it became like... Uh, he shifted from bow tie to like dead poet society type loves the great thinkers. Like I hear him on podcasts all the time, like uh planet money, NPR and that kind of stuff. And he's, it's always, he really loves to get on the shows and talk about, you know, how he read this autobiography of John Stuart Mill and all these things you can learn from his childhood and things like that, um, that make you seem, you know, well read or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And that seems to be part of the game. But at the same time, he also could have just soured on libertarianism and that whole crew. I think what you see with a lot of 
you know, reasonable, very serious conservatives to some degree are people who just actually don't like being around MAGA chuds and and those kinds of folks. And so they're like, man, I really would prefer to hang out with liberals. And they that sort of, you know, uh, steers them along that path. And I could see that with him. Um, Robert Nozick is another guy who seemed to have fallen prey to that where he was like one of the most famous American libertarian thinkers historically and started writing in his books that he really hates the people that like him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they stir they, they they stir they stir up the rabble and then like, you know, their their cultural elitism, you know, uh sort of prevents them from being among, you know, the people that they they have sort of called forth. Uh, you know, in their in their writings and their political work and and whatnot. Um, I mean, who can blame them? Nobody who who does want to hang out around a bunch of maga chuds. But at the same time, like, you know, you made the bed, fucking sleep. I, yeah. Well, I don't see like to be clear. Don't want to alienate my maga chud fanboys. Um, I would <laughs> prefer to hang out with maga chuds than completely fucking bloodless um, liberals any day of the week. <laughs> Uh, debatable. I think it would be more fun to like <laughs> it watch would be a more game. Interesting. It'd be more fun to watch a game with those people. Like they That's wouldn't true. be constantly <sighs> sports. Um, What's wrong with you? Sort of like you know, like invoking like how how like faux woke they are. You know, with every sentence. And, this is what I'm like, saying. Like name dropping the fact that like they they once lived beside a gay couple and like and they were totally okay with it. <laughs> like like, <laughs> like that kind of thing. Like they work with a black and they're totally fine with it though like it's you know it's not a thing though like uh and i'm even okay with their rap music you know like (laughs) (laughs) just don't want my kids going to any you know mixed race schools that's right don't go too far with it ship them off ship them off to those private schools anyway we we digress as usual (laughs) sorry here on dps (laughs) That's okay, because um, we're really getting to the meat of the, of the arguments here, or the real, the kind of worldview, the, the ideological claims that underlies the, the the technocratic veneer, you might say. So let's get to some of these concrete talking points as we finish up here today. One of the constant rebuttals that you'll find, and I don't even, can't even call it a rebuttal because it's just sort of a, a, I don't know, I'm not exactly sure what it is. Let's explain it to me. What is this Venezuela shtick? Venezuela is something that's been. Um, you know, thrown out there as this universal rebuttal of socialism. It's supposed to be a shutdown argument online or in person. We've seen it from the likes of uh, Infowars to Donald Trump to much more serious commentators, you know, like, say, Bloomberg, for example. Uh, You see this on Bloomberg's opinion pages uh, almost every day now. Uh, How does this operate and how do we shut it down as, as, uh, you know, principled socialists? Yeah, so, you know, Venezuela had a very fiery self-proclaimed socialist leader Chavez, uh, Hugo Chavez. And I mean, obviously he seemed to be a sincere socialist, but of course what he did as a, as a leader, um, was something that, uh, I don't know, often is not described as socialist. I mean, what he primarily did was he took revenues from the state-owned oil company and used them to improve the standards of living of poor people in 
the country and was really quite successful at that while he was doing it um like it, w- it was working yeah. um is that socialism i don't know like usually if you describe that to sort of like uh the online left they would say that it's not socialism that's uh welfare uh social democracy that sort of thing um isn't that just progressive taxation like yeah i mean it's basically a corporate in- a corporate income tax on the oil company except of course they own it so they don't have to tax it they just get the profits directly and distribute it out to poor people um well as as, it, as with usual there's a there's a there's also a gap between the bolivarian constitution and their kind of socialist aspirations as to how they wanted to organize the people in the countryside and in the mountains and all of the right. rest of it with what actually went down in the policy and economic uh you know arena at the state level Right. And that gets to be very key because because people slip between this a little bit when, you know, you get into that somewhat tiresome debate about what is socialism, what isn't, what counts as a socialist country or not. They obviously had very, you know, expansive socialist ambitions. The the Chavez himself obviously was, it seemed quite, you know, openly, I'm a socialist, etc. But what they mostly did was they took a state-owned oil company that was already state-owned before he even got into power mm-hmm. um, and used the profits from that company to uh, improve the standards of living of poor people and middle-class people to some degree, um, you know. But then what happened was oh, the oil prices, global oil prices just completely plummeted and that just, you know, uh, dealt a huge shock to their country. I mean, the the currency inflows from ex- oil exports just collapsed, you know, over the course of a couple of months. And the way they chose to respond to that was, uh, unfortunately, uh, printing a lot of money and trying to, you know, pump up uh, the economy that way. Um, and and that, that can work sometimes, but it only can work if the money is able to be stimulative and actually increases output. Um, but that didn't happen. So instead, you just get hyperinflation. And once you get hyperinflation, it's really hard to uh, to get the ship back, uh, to, to steer the ship back for a lot of reasons. It's a, There's a kind of feedback situation. The, the inequality inside of that country is such that uh, they don't have a robust middle class consumer base. And so as you as you rightly mentioned, I'm sure you could, you could uh, elaborate on this much better than I. But uh, when you try to stimulate the economy via, you know, printing money, it doesn't then get reinvested and consumed in the domestic economy in a way that you would need to prevent that hyperinflation bubble, which is also another really key counterargument to this Venezuela specter because they sort of utilize that to, to denounce and, and smear socialism in the U.S. And the U.S. has the most robust middle class consumer base in the world. So, like, I mean, I think it's clear, like, we wouldn't have those types of problems. Do you agree with that? Right. What's your take on that perspective? Well, we wouldn't have had a, our economy, our GDP just completely completely tank from oil price cuts either right that's not uh you know the degree to which their con their economy and especially their exports was dependent on oil it was absolutely massive which is not the case in the u.s so we're not as sensitive to that kind of yeah. shock yeah and but i think then, it's also worth noting that we orchestrated that shock in a sense through the kind of like oil imperialism by sort of coercing opec and others to decrease the the price of oil to the point where venezuela couldn't use that as a bully pulpit on the global economy any, any longer and there are a lot of other facts and shale uh, oil sort of like making an appearance other other type other forms of energy bringing down the costs of of energy worldwide and uh, and so again to say that these aren't i mean it, 
there were other processes involved, but these are not neutral economic processes that 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 have um, defanged the economic strength of Venezuela. This is this is also a result of U.S. imperialism in in a, in a really important sense. I think that's worth noting. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, to me, the thing that is sort of most notable about it in in terms of socialism is that, I mean, what it really was was a monetary policy fuck up like that. <laughs> I mean, like there was a big background of stuff that pushed them to the point where they tried to do that. But like basically they just managed the central bank badly. Um, and that really just you could do that anywhere. <laughs> you know? It really has nothing to do with the the companies. But and this is why we should abolish the Fed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, we could go straight into a libertarian uh, talking point from there if we wanted to. Um, but the thing I try to do when people bring up Venezuela, and this is uh, true of anyone who brings it up, because sometimes the left will bring it up as well. Um, is I, I ask, I, I make this claim. I say, well, Norway is Venezuela on steroids. That's my sort of like troll bait to, to see if I can get someone <laughs> to bite. And it usually is successful. And like people, no, that's not true. And then I'll show them like all the statistical points to say, no, 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 actually, you know, Norway is basically set up the same way as Venezuela was, except like they're even more socialistic in terms of how much the state owns and controls industry because Norway has their state-owned oil company, which used to just be called Stat Oil, and is now called Equinor. And they use that to, you know, export out to the world and, you know, bring in a whole bunch of money. And then they use that money to buy up a tons of capital. So, like, the Norwegian state owns... Uh, the most recent statistic is 60% of the national wealth the Norwegian state owns 60% of all the wealth in the country. And if you take out owner-occupied homes, you know, because there's a lot of home ownership in Norway, if you take that out, it's 75%. And it's like that. Chavez didn't get anywhere near that level of ownership. Um, And they also got hit by the oil price shock, but they did not respond the way Venezuela did. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, to put it lightly. So that's that's I think that basically squashes one of the key talking points. I think the central theme for me is to suggest that you know the what you mentioned there with the oil shock and the mismanagement of you know monetary policy, which can happen anywhere. It's happened here in the U.S. on multiple occasions. Uh, the U- U.S. monetary history going back into the 19th century is a fucking disaster. <laughs> you know, well, we I, had in the in the 70s yeah. the, the last bout of just wild inflation we had, which was up into the, the high you know I think up up into 15. 20%. That was the result of an oil shock in the 70s. It's the same basic thing. Similar types of things. When you find uh, the, the models, the business as usual, status quo is no longer working, you sort of uh, have a way of, th- economists have a way of throwing shit at the wall to see what sticks. And we think that our version of throwing shit is just, you know, much more uh, sophisticated than anyone else's. Uh, it's not the case. We also have far more domestic and international capacities to work with, right? We have larger tools and more weapons, I think, which is key. And which is to say, like to suggest that we're going to turn into Venezuela, it completely erases. I think this is the major talking point for, for my purposes. It completely erases the imperial role that the U S plays in the world. Right. I mean, to suggest that Venezuela, I mean, Venezuela is one of our victims in that respect. Um, so to suggest that, you know, we're going to become just like Venezuela completely overlooks like the hierarchies and the global political economy well that's a bit that's an important point that i think people miss a lot in these debates which is 
both that point about, you know, U.S. hegemony giving it a lot more leeway to do things, um, but also its size is key. You know, the reason we're not going to get completely obliterated by one commodity's price going way up or way down is because we're a 300 million person country with a very diverse economy that we're in all sectors, all industries. That's not true of a, of a smaller country like Venezuela. And it's also not true of smaller countries like the Nordic economies. Those economies are way more sensitive because they are so small, they're not able to be as diversified as, as we are. So you know, being a big country, at least if if you can hold it together and and be you know governed reasonably well, gives you a lot of resilience, a lot of ability to do things that you couldn't otherwise do. I mean, in some ways, the Soviet Union was a good example of this. It did obviously eventually uh, uh, end in flames, but you know, it, it had the best go of of that style of socialism, in part because it was so large and it, it could sort of maintain itself with its internal resources. Right. It's interesting. It brings me to my second point that we want to kind of debunk here. Uh, And it's, you know, what we're seeing, what we're explaining here, I think, is a certain way in which uh, what some on the left have called third worldism is rearing its head, like not only on the left, but also now on the right. Right. Like they're using the failures of third third worldism against the socialist project uh, writ large, you know, which is to say that, you know, well, it couldn't have happened in Venezuela. It didn't happen in any of these Soviet satellites or any of these sort of post-colonial regimes, uh, like maybe some of the the leftists had hoped it would in the 1960s and 70s. It failed there for all sorts of reasons that the right wing gets completely wrong. They completely, uh, you know, erase imperialism, which is one of the most crucial, uh, you know, factors there. And, uh, they, you know, so I think what we need to say then, I mean, would you suggest actually that the, the third worldist, and as I would, that the third worldist uh, viewpoint is it's severely flawed. And in fact, if socialism is going to come to any country, it's going to come to the, at least one of the countries first that has the most capacities and most flexibility in their political economy. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about socialism in one country kind of thing, like if that's your path forward, which implicitly is what a lot of third world is essentially are interested in right i mean they get really pumped up when you have national socialists not not, not <laughs> <laughs> they get pumped up when a nation gets Talk going all right it, and know. everybody you uh, heard it here first uh, matt bruning <laughs> is in favor of and and we're out uh, thanks for joining us when they, they get interested in that but it's like yes of course you know the idea that a speaking globally that a low income country that's relatively small that is not you know in a favored status of being first world or the idea that that country is going to be able to pull it off it's just it goes against the whole reason why you have such sympathy for the third world in the first place which is that they can't pull it off because they're so systematically disempowered from doing it and so, like, yeah, if it's going to happen, it's going to have to be countries that don't have those issues. And, and people say this sometimes when you bring up sort of the Nordic successes, which, you know, obviously they're not full-blown socialists, but you, you have countries like Norway where the government owns the vast majority of the wealth or Sweden where the government used to own uh, about half of the national wealth, you know, high unionization. You have a sort of socialist-like kind of thing going on there, and you have had it historically, is you'll talk to people who are more third-world inclined, and they'll be like, well, okay, yeah, they succeeded, but 
you have to realize they succeeded because they weren't under imperial threat. And I'm like, well, yes, of course. But, you know, the U.S. is also not under imperial threat. So maybe that's the kind of country you want to look towards if you want to, you know, make it happen in the U.S. Yeah. I think reasonable people can disagree uh, with respect to this debate that you often find yourself in with fellow leftists about how do we define socialism? Are the Nordic countries properly socialist? Uh, do we use markers of state ownership or or should we look to much more sort of robust markers uh, and aspir- I would say more aspirational markers like uh, workers control workers uh you know ownership versus control that old uh that old uh war horse or whatever hobby horse you can win you know you can, we can ride around that we can ride that fucker around all day and, and have that debate but i think the, the the key takeaway here is that the kind of flexibility and dynamism that would be required to start making this you know democratic socialist transition today is almost assuredly going to happen in a much more advanced economy. And, you know, and why not the U.S., I guess? Why not the U.S.? Why aren't we looking at Yeah, and, here? you know, if you, beat, if you topple the U.S., then that, that helps uh, take the pressure off of, you know, the other third world countries as well, hopefully, you know? So it's, and you live in the U.S., you actually have maybe some chance to do something uh, here, uh, or if you live in Australia or, or wherever, uh, whereas I don't have any ability to make socialism happen in, Nicaragua or wherever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this has been a roundabout way of addressing this other, the second smear tactic, which is to say that, um, you know, it, it, it failed in, in these far flung third world countries, you know, Pol Pot was unable to succeed or whatever because of X, Y, and Z. And it necessarily led to this kind of totalitarian uh, society or, or what have you because of it. Um, I think that's just all bunk and it's absurd and it under under underplays the the role that uh, American hegemony uh, has in, in the world economy and so on. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, if we're going to be drawing Pol Pot comparisons, I believe it's your current president that decided his love of the poorly educated. So, <laughs> probably calm the <laughs> fuck true. down on that one. I mean, it's it, it's, he doesn't wear glasses either. We're a couple of days away from uh, Trump declaring year zero via Twitter on his iPhone, which is definitely not bugged by uh, foreign intelligence services. Uh, the, anyway. the deep, deep state. The deep, deep, <laughs> deep state. So let's go to uh, the third, I don't know, talking point, smear, slander, absurdity that has recently emerged to try to take down Medicare for all as one of the key you know, tenets of, uh, of democratic socialism, which I want to talk about this, Matt, before I let you go, because it's just one of the most insane. And I think it highlights a lot of the absurdities underlying these talking points. But it's one that could actually stick if we don't propose or, or highlight its absurdity, I think, rigorously here, which is to say. Medicare for all is bad for seniors because it will corrupt their amazingly popular health care program that they love so much and that has worked so well for, the, for so many of them for, for decades. What do you make of that, that the entrance of younger people into the health care market and, and Medicare plan how, uh, is, would somehow uh, raise their rates? Or, or I mean, it's, it's bizarre. Yeah, well, so the first thing you want to point out is that Medicare for all, the plan being envisioned under Medicare for all is more generous than current Medicare. So seniors actually get quite a significant windfall from the shift. Because right now, if you're a senior on Medicare, you get Medicare, I think it's called Part A and Part B, the sort of government portions of it. But those are actually not as generous as, as some 
seem to think. And so most seniors have to then go out and get Medicare Advantage or Medicare supplementary insurance. They have to go pay for that to kind of cover the parts that the Medicare program itself don't cover. And under Medicare for All, they don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to go buy supplementary insurance because it's going to be part of the core program. So if you're an, an, an elderly person, it's like, hey, you get all the stuff you get right now from your Advantage and supplementary plans. You get that right in core Medicare and you don't have to pay anything for it. Um, in fact, you won't even probably be paying any of the taxes for it, right? Because those taxes are going to come from people who are currently working and able to pay income tax. And so I could say, outside of unemployed people, elderly people benefit the most from this program as it's currently constructed, because they get those extra benefits without paying any extra tax. It's almost like introducing an enormous contingent of much younger, healthier people into an insurance pool is um, good for the old sick people. <laughs> Weird how that works. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. But I think the seniors are, you know, they have uh, a certain kind of limited form of socialism that's been granted to them. And, you know, they're doing as they do in places like Canada, where oddly enough, the right wing is co- constantly uses you know, the specter of the loss of uh, state-provided health care due to immigration or whatever as as a key talking point. Uh, so you can see the way in which like some of these, the popularity of these socialist programs can be wielded in an oddly anti-socialist direction if people start seeing these as limited resources that they must uh, jealously protect uh, as opposed to expanding for all, which will inevitably, inevitably actually improve the situation for everybody in the long run. I mean, it seems to me that the arguments are so obviously on our side. Why can't we spell this out for people, Matt? Why are the liberals struggling so badly going into the 2018 midterm elections to paint this vision uh, for, for America? Are they, are, they, are they just kind of disingenuous about their support for Medicare for all? That's what I suspect. What, what do you make of that? Well, a lot of liberal media types are not are, are openly not fans of Medicare for All. And that does put a thumb on the scale a little bit against trying to get the message out because they don't really have any interest in doing that. They don't have any interest in sort of pain, painstakingly. Uh, I, I drew this example before uh, recently um, between immigration and Medicare for All. So... Liberal pundits, to their credit, are usually quite, you know, supportive of increased immigration. But what's interesting about immigration is you have a lot of the similar problems, like you just mentioned, where you can scare the public into thinking immigrants are going to take some kind of fixed pie from you and or they're going to take your jobs or that sort of thing. And that's none of that is is true, right? We can actually show through studies that immigrants are net payers into the government. We can show that immigrants expand the number of jobs and usually go into sectors that native-born uh, Americans aren't interested in working in, such as uh, agriculture or food service or whatever. But you, it, it's hard to explain that. It's, it takes time and effort to sit down and kind of meticulously show you, no, 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 immigrants are complementary to the society. They're not in competition for zero-sum, this or that. And liberals do. I, there must have been 
tens of thousands of words produced by folks at Vox explaining that your intuition about immigration is wrong, that your intuition that they're competing with you and they're going to hurt your standard of living, that's wrong. They will pour a crazy amount of effort trying to make that happen. But tr- trying to get them to, uh, uh, pushing them to say, hey, could you, would you mind explaining that actually Medicare for All is going to save money, like total overall for people? No, we don't have we don't have the time for that. We might mention it in a paragraph or something, but uh, we're not going to do that. Or or when all the fact checkers get that wrong, like they did <laughs> with Glenn Kessler and Politica fact, there's no like mass uprising among other liberal media people to say, "Hey guys, no, 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 that's not that's not right. That's not right." Even though many of them know it's not right, you know. I mean, Matt Iglesias is a is a good example of this. I I'm a little bit more fond of of Matt than a lot of leftists, but he will write piece after piece after piece about how all these myths about immigration are myths. Um, could not be bothered to write a piece about how Glenn Kessler and PolitiFact got Medicare for All score wrong, even though I know he knows they got it wrong. Could not be bothered to do that. And that goes to show you, right, like in general, I think liberals just are not as committed to this policy idea. And so it's just harder when you have conservatives are actively against it. Liberals really don't want it that much. How do you else do you get your message out to people? It's interesting in as much as like, and I hate to be like a a theory nerd here, but it really strikes me that like the extent to which liberals are really like prototypical conservatives in as much as like, um, like typically or historically conservatives will like hang on to the death to like a particular issue or aspect of their ideology but then, like, once norms have sufficiently shifted, they will, like, move on and then hang on to the next one the same way. And so I feel like because there is such consensus about immigration within that particular milieu, it's really easy. Like, you don't have to put a lot of skin in the game to be defending that vigorously. But because something like Medicare for All is far less of a consensus, particularly in the circles in which they move, they're not yet at a point where they're prepared to engage with it like to the degree that people like us might. Yeah, no, I, I think the social dynamics are huge. I mean, especially being in D.C. now and kind of seeing these circles, you know, I mean, basically all, all the liberal media lives either in D.C. or New York City, and you definitely get a sense, you know, they're their own class, the sort of, uh, I don't know what you want to call them. You could call them like the cosmopolitan liberal elite or something like that. Globalists. <laughs> they end up forming their own, you know, they have their own sort of internal dialectic of what they think and what they believe. And, you know, um, this is one of them where right now, like, yes, immigration absolutism is is on the table. Um, and, and like, you know, that's how it operates in the circles. But Medicare for all isn't. And it's very strange, of course, because it's like, well... You could definitely make a case on immigration, a similar kind of thing where you're like, man, this is just going to be hard politically to get this over on people. You know, it's hard to explain to people that this isn't an issue. But they're like, no, this is a moral imperative. Like people are dying because they can't get into the country or people are dying trying to cross the border or people being separate. Like 
And you're like, yeah, you know, literally tens of thousands of people are dying every year because they can't have health insurance. And your position is uh, we shouldn't try to get them health insurance because it's just going to be too much of a political uh, push and that we should instead um, sort of give in to, to, to the to the political difficulties involved in that. And that's just a soul. It's like there's no consistent line between why one or the other. It's just that's just sort of how it's formed Uh in these groups uh, that sort of operate socially and go to the same parties and that sort of thing. One thing that we've seen in the recent months is that uh, just one tweet from Bernie Sanders, you know, the kind of massive reach and appeal that he's, he's sort of gained for himself. He, he tweeted out your uh, people's policy project study uh, opposing the, the ridiculous Pinocchios of uh, Glenn Kessler Uh, some months back. And so, I mean, in a sense, you know, Bernie Sanders is this army of one that's taking on at the highest levels, this kind of intellectual uh, liberal political class we've just talked about, which is why I think, you know, that movement is so important. And it's also important that we have people like yourself who are well-placed to make those arguments in public so that people like Sanders or Ocasio-Cortez or whomever has a toolbox to reach into when they need to debunk uh, th- these absurdities. So one final question. I-, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you this. It's a little out of place, but perhaps not. One thing that's interesting, I think, in this CEA report is that they, they use the same kind of anti-socialist red-baiting brush to paint both Sanders and Elizabeth Warren into the same corner. And I would argue, and I want to take, I want your take on this because you're more the policy wonk for sure. I would argue that there are significant differences, at least in the trajectories of Bernie Sanders' programs versus Elizabeth Warren's. What do you make of that conflation? It's going to be a, a very popular ideological cudgel to use against the left going into 2018 and certainly 2020. What are the key differences between Bernie Sanders and Liz Warren and their substantive policy preferences? Yeah, that is going to be the question, I think. I've actually started to collect the pieces that are now starting to trick out, out on it and like get my, you know, clip them and, and, and try to keep keep a prize to where the debate is. Bosker Sankara wrote one for The Guardian recently that was just sort of Warren versus Bernie. And then David Dayen wrote one for The New Republic. I tried to kind of come up with this distinction a little bit when I went to give a presentation recently. And it's it's a little bit tough because... At this point, if you kind of just list the things that they're co-sponsored on, the bills that they say they support and the proposals they say they support, the overlap is is really quite massive. Um, and it becomes very difficult then to get a clean line where you're like, oh, one is this way and one is the other. So what you have to do instead is, if you want to try to draw a distinction, is not use what policies they nominally say they support but instead look at their histories and look at what they seem to really get animated by. Like, what do you, what do you really like on a day to day talk about and seem to work on regardless of what you may have signed your name on, uh, you know, a petition or whatever. And on that, if you kind of go that route, my sense of it is that, you know, at her core, Warren is very much a clean capitalism regulator type. That was her expertise before she came to Congress. She was uh, an expert in bankruptcy law and financial regulation at Harvard Law School and was very much into, uh, it was her idea to create the Consumer Financial Protection Board. That, that came out of her scholarship. And, you know, the whole premise of that is we can create rules that will help consumers to protect them against predatory banks and 
essentially, once we get the rules of the market set up in a fair way that promotes competition, that prevents predatory behavior and fraud and that sort of thing, that that's really the key of what we're going for. And that 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 sort of, you know, will get you where you want to be. And Sanders, I would say, is uh, his history seems to suggest a few things. One, really likes, you know, the welfare state and universal like public services, um, like Medicare for all and free college and that sort of thing. Uh, Warren has now signed on to those um, initiatives, but only in the last, only since the 2016 election, uh, when she began presumably contemplating a presidential run. And then the second thing is he's real into, you know, workers' movements, worker empowerment, the labor movement, that sort of thing. Uh, Less uh, focused on, like, getting the regulatory rules right and more focused on can we get power to workers so they can, like, fight for themselves, that kind of thing, you know. I think that's an important distinction because one of the things that I've seen trotted out in support of Elizabeth Warren as as kind of being uh, uh, an equal of Bernie Sanders, and of course, you know, we're talking about the U.S. political scene here. We don't have a lot of options. So I, I'm not going to denigrate anybody who gets excited about the prospect of a Liz Warren, uh, you know, candidate. Yeah, and I don't mean to be negative yeah, either. I'm just, yeah. you know, I mean, let, there's the no quite, I mean, we've got uh, the, the, the Cheeto in chief. Over here, um, uh, I'll I'll leave the cynicism to Amy uh, as she collects her her free healthcare checks down there in Australia. Uh, <laughs> Easy yeah, I just, for me I just to privilege, say. I just privilege shame you. Yeah, I whatever. <laughs> no, but you're not wrong. I mean, well, I think we're going to in episodes to come, we're going to be breaking down Liz Warren's uh, policy, uh, you know, platform and talking about the strengths and weaknesses. And I think you know we're not just here to pick on Liz Warren, but I think there's this you know in the progressive world right i'm i'm looking i'm i'm speaking in particular we'll finish on this a scale uh, a report card if you will on progressive politicians that's been released by progressivepunch.org and i don't know anything about them but they've come up with a scale and it's in terms they've rated certain um votes and positions and they've given um they've a uh, top 15 and most of them are democrats here in terms of their progressiveness if it tells you anything kamala harris is ranked number 1 as the strongest progressive, Liz Warren is number three, Cory Booker number four, and uh, Bernie Sanders is down there at number nine on the progressive punch. Let me guess, because he didn't chart. jump straight on like some anti-gun bullshit in Vermont. It's yeah, because be liberals fetishize Probably, birth yeah. control and guns as though that is in some way meaningfully political. Uh-huh. When in fact uh-huh. all those issues do is reinforce like safe liberal liberalism. I don't. I, yeah, sorry. I get really frustrated with that lens. The gun stuff is particularly weird because all the bills that liberals push wouldn't actually accomplish anything. No, <laughs> it's like no. I'm for gun control. It's like okay, do you want to round up the guns? Because that's what they did in Australia. Uh, we did. No, 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 no. It's like okay, well. So you want to posture and do futile bullshit. Like, yes. at minimum, I would say, like, look, <laughs> why stir the nest? If the only thing you're going to be able to do is is futile bullshit that's not actually going to reduce gun deaths, then just just don't do it at all. Just, and then at least stick you don't to piss off, you know? Yeah, stick to your thoughts and prayers. Like, just bite that right. bullet. Yeah, don't give the right wing the talking points. Uh, don't give know. it to them unless you're actually going to do something that's actually going to seriously, you know, cut down on this stuff. Which there are no plans really to do. Yeah, that. but sad parents make for really emotive TV ads, so it's good. It's true. 
It's true. Don't wave a slingshot in the air if you don't want to, you know, provoke a gunfight from someone who's got who's carrying a, a an AK. You know, that's 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 the that's the metaphor there. Uh, but anyway, I just I, we we we've raised this distinction between Sanders and Warren because I've seen uh, listeners of the show has have raised this progressive punch scorecard as a way to indicate that maybe perhaps people like Kamala Harris, Liz Warren, Cory Booker. And others are just as viable in terms of being strong progressive candidates as the likes of Bernie Sanders. And I think you're right, uh, Matt, and and I'm echoing a lot of things uh, that I agree with uh, from Baskar Sankara's Guardian piece uh, about the kind of structural differences between Sanders' political strategy and Liz Warren. And um, and we'll be breaking down uh, all of this in episodes to come. So if people want more, uh, if listeners out there want more of that, I'm sure uh, you will be breaking that down as well. So we'll let you go. Thanks so much for joining us. Everybody should check out uh, your podcast that you do. Uh, it's called The Bruinigs. It's delightful. <laughs> it's um, it's very casual and fun and interesting. And uh, you, you, you know, both of you break down whatever you're currently writing and thinking about. Um, how long have you been doing that now? Uh, probably three months, maybe. Yeah. How'd that come about? What's the story there? Where, 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 where can we expect the Bruinigs to take us in season one? Well, the story was that Liz <laughs> thought it was funny that I'd never uh, seen Harry Potter and yet was always reading pieces about politics that were being explained through the lens of Harry Potter. And she <laughs> thought it would be a good bit to have me read these pieces and try to reconstruct what Harry Potter is about. Uh, just based on the pieces and she's like let's just record this this will be great and then i we did that and that was it there was no like podcast per se but there was a big response and then we just kept you know from there moved into a more conventional you know hour-long uh you know current events slash type podcast thing yeah yeah so that's that's a fun show it's very charming the banter the two of you have and uh, you have you, know, you sneak a lot of really interesting, you know, um, arguments or perspectives in there as well. So everybody check out the podcast, The Bruinings. Again, support uh, Matt's People's Policy Project. You've got a Patreon there, everybody. Yeah, that's doing very well. And again, you know, it's really, really important that politicians like Sanders, uh, AOC, and others have uh, reports like yours uh, to pull from when they need them uh, to have that empiric- that strong empirical data to back up uh, their policy uh, platforms. So everybody get out there, support People's Policy Project. And uh, Matt Bruni, again, thanks so much for joining us on Dead Pond and Society. Yeah, thanks so much, Matt. Thanks for having me. This is great. And that concludes this week's episode with Matt Bruinig. Thanks again to Matt and my amazing co-host, Amy Therese. We've got a lot more coming your way this week. Everybody stay tuned. We're going to have a B-side for the patrons coming up at the end of the week. We're also going to have some post-election coverage by our main man, Daniel Marins, who is a writer over at Huffington Post. He's been beating up the soles of his shoes, I don't know, pounding the pavement, whatever the metaphor is, over the past months. And he's been interviewing uh, activists in, in the Democratic Party and the grassroots level who are working very hard to overturn this red tide that we've been suffering under since 2016 and even long before that at the state and local level in particular. And Daniel is going to join us on Dead Pundits to talk about the election, the wins, the losses, and uh, what it means for progressives and democratic socialists going into 2020. So you're not going to want to miss that. Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits so that you don't miss any of it. Thanks, everybody, for your generous support. 
and we'll see you next time. Oh, this you crazy mother.